welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicating to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, a marpling we go. Kemper is so excited. <laughs> I'm living my best life here. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> so, so we are doing a Miss Marple short story for the first time in a while. We are bridging the gap, the too large of a gap, certainly for Kemper, and I think even a little bit for Catherine, between mm-hmm. the moving finger and a murder is announced. I mean, we'll where doing. else would I get to like talk about all my dark marble theories? So, you know, it is really sad for me to not have a novel coming up. You know, and it is true. We've we've actually heard from some people in the sort of messaging back and forth that we do on our Patreon account. We've heard from a number of listeners who 100% subscribe to the Dark Marble Theory. So we know that there are <laughs> adherents. This is the cult of Dark Marble, and she she is gathering her forces I here just, slowly. Yeah, slowly. I like to be the high priestess of this. <laughs> <laughs> what is our Miss Marple selection for this episode, Kat? So Miss Marple tells a story, and uh, it's a yeah, little she bit does. Of a weird. It, yeah, she does, and it's a <laughs> little bit of a weird one. And I think it's actually appropriate that we're talking about it on a podcast because it was written in 1934 for the radio for Kemper. Yes. Agatha herself <gasps> to read on air. Oh, my God. I know. And it was subsequently published in 1935 in Home Journal as, quote unquote, behind closed doors. And then in book form in the U.S. in 1939, and there were God a Mystery and Other Stories. And in the U.K. in 1979. So 40 years later in Miss Marple's final cases. This is a bit of an outlier. And you can tell when you read it that it's essentially a script. Right. I mean, it's yeah, it was not it, it does not read like it was meant to be read. Right. If that it makes re- sense. Yeah, it, it was it reads as if it were meant to be listened to. So, I, yeah, I feel like in a weird way, you know, we couldn't find a recording of this ourselves. If anyone knows of a recording in existence, please do contact us because I would be thrilled to hear well, Agatha I mean, Christie I- out. She didn't want to do it, supposedly, right? I believe so. And I think also Christy herself, when it came to working with the BBC, they had a somewhat fraught relationship. I know there were often issues as to remuneration. You know, certainly as she as she grew more established in her career, she was someone who valued her time and her hard work and knew that she could be compensated well for it. And I think at times didn't feel as though what the BBC were offering was really up By to... By the way, should you know, we all standard. be Agatha in that regard? Because I feel like, especially as a woman, we do not ask for our worth too much of the time. You know what? Go Agatha. Absolutely. I'm wildly extrapolating here based on personal experience and just sort of cultural cliches. But I think there was a sense on the BBC side that, well, it's a privilege to be working with the BBC. So that's why we don't offer as much money because it's not about the money. And I I just, I think there was a little bit of a clash there at times. So it did not always run as smoothly. And I don't think she did as much herself with them as, as one might think, given that she is such a, or became such a national institution. And of course the BBC is as well, but this is one case in which they did, which is fantastic. And we have this kind of artifact, you know, the story exists as an artifact of that radio transmission that happened. 
All right, so let's talk about the victim of this story. And we sort of have two. (laughs) We have one very traditional victim, the victim of a murder that happened, which is a Mrs. Rhodes who was stabbed Mm -hmm. in a hotel in Barnchester. But our initial victim, (laughs) based on the way that the story is framed, is uh, Mr. Rhodes, because this is the man who is the husband of the deceased, and he has come to Miss Marple for her help in preventing him from going to the gallows. That also pretty much completes our suspects list because <laughs> Mr. Road is suspect numero uno, and there really isn't a numero dos. So no. he is suspected of having stabbed his wife because he was he was there, and he's the husband. We'll get into whether or not he is guilty or innocent as we talk about the world as it appears to be. Right. So the world as it appears to be again. A little bit of a weird one, because keep in mind, dear listeners, this was meant to be listened to. So we end up with Miss Marple narrating the entirety of events. Right, like there's no she's, interiority to this story. No. At all. No. And she's actually, she's telling it to Raymond West. And I know. the woman who, it seems, based on the fact that she's telling the two of them together in what in, in a cozy domestic setting, at this point is his wife. his wife, Joan, who is referenced as being an artist. So I actually thought this was really interesting, given the fact that it was written in 1934. That is only six years after these specific stories within the 13 Problems collection were published referencing Joyce. Lampriere, right, as the artist girlfriend of Raymond West, and of course they become engaged at the end of their six stories within the Thirteen Problems. Those stories featuring Joyce Lampriere were all published individually in 1928, and then this story was published or read out in 1934. So at some point in those six years, there's just a little bit of a continuity error there on Christie's part, I suppose, unless you know Raymond West just decided it wasn't enough. For Joyce Lampriere to change her maiden name, but she had to change her first name too, which you know what? Maybe that's exactly what happened. I mean, Raymond West seems like the type to insist on that. So, <laughs> you know, I would not necessarily be surprised that our long running nemesis, Raymond West, might think <laughs> such a thing. Our true joint nemesis. I feel like we each have our individual nemeses. Yeah, know. Jane Wilkinson for me. And Parker Pine. And Parker Pine. I don't know if I actually have any individual nemeses myself. Oh, just um, me. I just just hold a grudge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But as our our good friend of the podcast, Sophie Hanna, would say, not necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily a bad thing. And everybody should go out and read Sophie's book on good grudge holding because you know what? I think that we all need that. (laughs) And listen to her podcast. As well. I know. she's I know. She, Her podcast is uh, going strong on that topic. Yeah. So she's telling this, she's ostensibly telling the story to Raymond and <coughs> Joan. Joan Nay Joyce. Joan <laughs> Nay Joyce, West Long. Nay Lampriere. Yeah, correct. <laughs> God. Poor Joan slash Joyce. Yeah, she has to be married to Raymond West on top of everything else. 
Yeah. So what's happening here? Essentially, Miss Marple is minding her own business at home, as she does. When her old friend and lawyer, speaking of the 13 problems, Mr. Petherick shows up. So this is the solicitor who we met first in the 13 problems. At the time that Miss Marple was telling the story to Joan and Raymond. He he dead. He dead. He he unfortunately is deceased, which is is sad. He died two years ago. But he was the solicitor described as a dried up little man with eyeglasses, which he looked over and not through. And his story that he told within that first collection in The 13 Problems was Motive versus Opportunity. One of my favorites, actually. I, I really enjoyed that one. So, right. R.I.P. Mr. Petherick. But he's alive, at least in the course of this story that's sure. being told. Sure. Um, otherwise, that would be creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Although, last week's episode, we did talk about ghosts. So Lots of ghosts. But you know what? You know who has no truck with ghosts? Miss Marble. Marble. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on here? Well, he's there with his friend slash client, Mr. Rhodes, and they are in need of Miss Marple's assistance very urgently. Patrick has retained Sir Malcolm Old on Mr. Rhodes' behalf, but they're both unsatisfied with the course of defense here because no one knows what actually has happened in regards to the crime that Mr. Rhodes is being charged for, which we're going to find out about. And, you know, for once, Christy herself makes the cleanest summary of the world as it appears to be because she's narrating it. So we're just going to actually read the narration because this is what appears to have happened in the world. Mr. And Do Mrs. your best Christy impersonation. Right, right. <laughs> but, God, no. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Rhodes had been staying at the Crown Hotel in Barnchester. Mrs. Rhodes, who, so I gathered from Mr. Petherick's careful language, was perhaps just a shade of a hypochondriac, had retired to bed immediately after dinner. She and her husband occupied adjoining rooms with a connecting door. Mr. Rhodes, who was writing a book on prehistoric flints, of course he is, settled down to work in the adjoining room. At 11 o'clock, he tidied up his papers and prepared to go to bed. Before doing so, he just glanced into his wife's room to make sure that there was nothing she wanted. He discovered the electric light on and his wife lying in bed stabbed through the heart. She had been dead at least an hour, probably longer. The following were the points made. There was another door in Mrs. Rhodes' room leading into the corridor. The door was locked and bolted on the inside. The only window in the room was closed and latched. According to Mr. Rhodes, nobody had passed through the room in which he was sitting except a chambermaid bringing hot water bottles. The weapon found in the wound was a stiletto dagger which had been lying on Mrs. Rhodes' dressing table. She was in the habit of using it as a paper knife. There were no fingerprints on it. The situation boiled down to this. No one but Mr. Rhodes and the chambermaid had entered the victim's room. So they very quickly eliminate the chambermaid as she is very unfortunately described as a quote-unquote half-wit. Yeah, a little stuck in its time there. Yeah, not great. And it looks like Mr. Rhodes must have done it. But of course, Mr. Petherick does not think so. So Miss Marple has reason to believe in Mr. Petherick. So she immediately goes looking for another explanation. Right. So Miss Marple asks some more particulars about the layout here that we're dealing with. And it's pointed out that there were several witnesses and an electrician who had eyes on 
either of the doors within our layout of those two rooms. So there's one door onto the hall leading into the room Mr. Rhodes was in, and then there's another door leading out of Mrs. Rhodes's bedroom into the hall. So that's that's two separate doors, and there were two different sets of eyewitnesses essentially looking at either door. Both sets of witnesses say that no one saw anyone enter or exit except for Mr. Rhodes and the chambermaid. So again, that doesn't look very good for Mr. Rhodes. It is also noted that there is a bolted door into the bedroom that has a little hall with a ladies' room in it. But again, that door was also locked. So it's kind of like a little, there's like a little antechamber, right? Between the two rooms, essentially. But right. but it's internal to those two rooms. It's not like anyone could have gotten in or mm-hmm. out of it without going through one of those two doors. Yeah, and they're locked the from the rooms. and they're locked from the inside. Right. So Mr. Rhodes also tells a sort of awkward story about the inquest and about how he had to explain this at the inquest. But Mrs. Rhodes had apparently been like a bit the girl who cried wolf and was a serial over exaggerator. Which led her husband to not believe her when she purportedly started receiving like insane letters in the post. Apparently, she had also previously, quote unquote, made up a story about how when she was younger, she had committed a hit and run. And she was convinced that somehow the child's mother had figured out who she was, hunted her down, and was now threatening her with insane letters. And Mr. Rhodes didn't believe any of this. And he basically says that at the inquest that his wife, again, girl who cried wolf. Mrs. Rhodes sounds like a peach, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, she does. So she's a hypochondriac who might have run over a child. And who makes up stories to get attention. Right, so, right. Oh, yeah. In she sounds case. like a lovely, lovely person. Yeah. So Miss Markle asks if there are any single women who were staying in the hotel on the night of the murder, and there are two. The first is a Mrs. Granby, who is an Anglo-Indian widow with must-red hair and rather exotic clothes in her early 50s. And the second is a Miss Carruthers, a horsey spinster who dropped her G's and is in her 40s. And she has closely cropped hair and glasses. Miss Marple rather quickly puts two and two together and says that it's really all quite simple. And when the men look at her shocked, she very bluntly answers that there are only four solutions. Mr. Rhodes killed his wife. The chambermaid killed her. She committed suicide. Or she was killed by another person who no witness saw enter or exit the room. The men say that's quite impossible, but Kemper, the world as it actually is. Well, we're gonna do we're gonna do some clues, and I, I think you should cover the first clue, Catherine, because you're all over this one. And, oh, it's uh, one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite Christie one hundred ones. Never underestimate the help. Never. Not ever. Not we ever. know that from Poirot, because, and we know it from Marple, but particularly Poirot always likes to ingratiate himself with the help. And the deduction here is if one of the only people who quote-unquote could have done this uh, was a person dressed in a servant's clothing, then we know from three-act tragedy, death in the clouds, one to buckle my shoe, that... The likelihood here is that the murderer was dressing up as a servant slash member of the help that you can overlook. Yep. Never underestimate the help. All right. Clue number two has to do with the layout of the rooms and those witnesses, the two sets of witnesses. And here's the deduction. 
and this is clever and it's a little tricky, but as laid out by Miss Marple, she's very clear that even though both sets of witnesses say the only people they saw enter and exit either door were Mr. Rhodes or the chambermaid, she's also very clear that one set of witnesses had their eyes on one door and the other set on the other door, i.e. no one was watching both doors. So if, say, it seemed as though the chambermaid entered through one door once, but left through the other door twice, (laughs) no one would be able to take up on the weirdness of that. The witnesses never specify how many times they saw the chambermaid enter Mm -hmm. and exit the doors. And that is really key. And this story actually reminded me for that reason of this Poirot short story we did ages ago on the podcast. It was part of the Poirot Investigates collection, The Theft of the Grand Metropolitan, because that also relied on an understanding of the specific layout of the room where the crime mm-hmm. happened. It's almost like a little bit of a mathematical or geographical puzzle. It's like a, well, it, you know, it a geospatial reminds, puzzle. <laughs> well, it reminds me a little bit of a story problem that you'd get on something like the GRE or some sort of standardized testing where you have to sort of pick the probability or the number of possible routes that something goes. Yeah, it's, it's a almost lo- like it's a, it's a logic problem. It's a logic problem. They, they have them on the LSAT. I, I yeah, the LSAT. Yeah, it's totally a logic problem, and it's also one. And then, like, this is such the key kind of muscle being worked for any mystery reader. It's testing our assumptions, testing the assumptions mm-hmm. that we make because we have to really question what those witnesses are saying and what that means, and the limitations on what they're saying and what that means is possible. So, right. Let's talk about the world as it actually is. Well, as I said, no one notices the help unless you're Poirot or Marple. Or, as Marple notes, unless the help happens to be a beautiful young girl, then you might notice the help. But is this to say that the chambermaid is our murderer? Well, no. As we've already said, very ungraciously, they call her a halfwit. So, no, uh, she is not the murderer. But someone can put on a chambermaid outfit and... If you're not paying attention to the help, no one might notice that it's not the same chambermaid. So basically, one of the two lone women in the hotel put on a chambermaid outfit, followed in the actual chambermaid, then hid in the bathroom in that hall until the chambermaid, the actual chambermaid, had left. Then after Mrs. Rhodes went to bed, she was stabbed with a stiletto. Because guess what, listeners? Mrs. Rhodes wasn't lying. <laughs> she was, in fact, a reckless dryer who murdered a child in a hit and run. And that child's increasingly unhinged mother pursued her across England, abiding her time before murdering her. And again, just going to our logic puzzle problem, what seems to be the case is that the set of witnesses, who I believe were just diners within the hotel, watching the door into Mr. Rhodes's bedroom, the first of the two rooms, saw the maid enter once. And then the electrician who had his eyes on the door leading out of Mrs. Rhodes' bedroom must have seen the maid, I'm using air quotes, leave twice because it was the actual maid leaving and then the fake maid, which was someone who was dressed up in the maid. And who was that someone, Catherine? Well, we don't really know, but Miss Marple bets on Carruthers. Why do you ask? Because according to Miss Marple, dropping your G's as a younger woman is not a thing that actually happens in her version of England. So Marple figures that it's actually an over-exaggerated acting job. 
and that it must, as a result, be Carruthers. And it turns out that she's right. Carruthers is an assumed name, and the actual woman ends up being sent to Broadmoor to prison. Mr. Rhodes got married to a nice new woman. They have a wee moppet, and guess who the godfather is, Kemper? I think it just might be Miss Marple. Oh, I think it is. Saved him from the gallows. Here's my favorite line in the entire story. I actually have, I have my least favorite line and my most favorite line. I'll start with my most favorite. And it's extraordinary how things turn out for the best in this world. <laughs> that actually could be used as hardcore evidence for your dark marble theory, because if that is not the pitch darkest thing to say in a story involving an insane mother of a child run over by a car, murdering this man's wife, who's then framed for like, it's just there's so many horrible things happening here. And she's just like, and now I'm a godmother. Yay! <laughs> I know. Well, it's almost like you can hear like almost a bite to it. Yeah. But I would actually argue when I'm not being disingenuous when I say this, and this is why I love Christy, because you can read it in so many different ways. I think they are actually, you can read it earnestly because I think Miss Marple is making the point that another child was created and life goes on. And it's that kind of Protestant, perhaps even specifically Anglican, but like Protestant, stiff upper lip. Yes, horrible things happen, but we just keep on going, keep it all together. And things really do work out. That to me feels like a very earnest Miss Marple, the traditionalist thing to say without even the shadowy underbelly of what that could possibly mean. I think you could read it both ways. Yeah, I do think it's a little disturbing. (laughs) But either um, way, it's a little disturbing, really. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, I know that she's the murder victim and like nobody wants to be hunted over the course of years and like stabbed in the chest in their hotel room. But the woman literally ran over a child. You kind of understand why Carruthers, or whatever her real name is, went insane. We don't know how negligent the woman actually was in this accident. She's not, she might not be Anthony Marston from And Then There Were None, but... It seems a little like she's Anthony Marston, doesn't it? It does. It definitely does. The intimations here coming from Mr. Rose are, again, that his wife was not a peach. So, yeah. Yeah. I did not like this line, which appears twice in the story when Miss Marple says she's just a teeny weeny bit pleased with herself. <laughs> I couldn't help feeling just a teeny weeny bit pleased with myself. I think Miss Marple could do better than using the phrase teeny weeny. It was an itsy bitsy teeny weeny I don't know. It felt a little diminishing for one uh, of such grand stature as Miss Jane Marple. Well, yeah, it also just doesn't sound like anything that she would actually say. Although we don't hear, you know, I mean, it's funny. This is by far the most we hear from Miss Marple. Um, oh, it's probably the most we've ever actually heard from Miss Marple because yeah. we complained in The Moving Finger that we get virtually no Miss Marple. And I believe we are going to have that same complaint in future Miss Marple novels as well. And even in some of these stories, she she's listening and then she comes in and she she sort of makes her attack oh, at the she, end of the story. She's, and- she, she's the closer. She's the closer. Yeah, she, she tells everyone what actually happened, but we don't always hear a lot from her. So I did like it for that. I also appreciated that she's still serving that cherry brandy. I want some of that cherry <laughs> brandy. There's no way that that cherry brandy is not delicious. Ugh, batter is sickly sweet. 
No. If Poirot was making the cherry brandy, it would be sickly sweet. I think Miss Marple's spirits are dry. And, oh, yeah. Right? No, I, I like that. Yes, I like that. Yeah, I think her booze is to die for. That is an end to Miss Marple Tells a Story. Uh, you know, one of the more slight additions to the Marpleverse, but enjoyable nonetheless. Well, and some appearances by Patrick and Raymond West. Absolutely. So join us next time for our next novel, which we're very excited about. That would be Death Comes as the Are End. Are we excited about it, Kemper? I think we should reserve our judgment of the novel for the episode and just say that we are looking forward to discussing a Christie novel because we haven't done it for a few weeks. And no matter where we ultimately come down on it, it is a joy to discuss a full-length Christie text. And this, of course, is Christie's novel that is set in ancient Egypt. Mm. Yes, it has no adaptations, not for long, because the BBC is currently working on an adaptation of Death Comes as the End. Um, In the meantime, if you would like to join us in our Patreon community, where we discuss such gems as the UK radio adaptation, as voiced by John Moffat playing Poirot. We will be discussing the uh, Five Little Pigs adaptation that Moffat does uh, very shortly. Please join us on our Patreon account. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash allaboutagatha. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. Uh, You can also email us. I haven't mentioned our email address yet. Allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. Our Instagram handle is all about Agatha and we really appreciate the ratings and reviews we've gotten thus far and we encourage anyone who hasn't done so to just take a moment and give us a rating give us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast it really helps us out so much and we will see you next time bye bye bye